Today we're in Genesis 25 as we continue in our series of going through the patriarchal families. Genesis 25, we're going to be starting in verse 19 in a minute. If you haven't noticed, today is the exact middle of July. And you might say that we're about halfway through summer. We've been talking at our house about how it has flown by so quickly. And it seems like that is always the case. And of course, we love summer because it's a more relaxed schedule. And it's a good time to enjoy the longer days of being outside. But for me growing up, and maybe for you too, summer usually always meant family reunions. I come from a very strong fun family. So these annual gatherings were times that I always looked forward to because moments to visit and to play together and laugh at the funny memories of each generation are part of the fabric of being connected all while making new memories for the future. But of course, when you have so many related people in one place, there is inevitably drama A few hours with family and suddenly we can be thrown back into those predictable patterns where we aren't what we would call our best selves. Sometimes when I'm with my old, with my four siblings, I can behave like the youngest child that I am. And suddenly I'm 10 years old again, which is not a good look, believe me. How we see one another in our families of origin can sometimes get stuck in one place as if we haven't grown past the last time that we lived together. If we're lucky, we get through our visits unscathed. If not, we might have to work through a few things before it's over. Ah, summer. Now, all of us have grown up in families or have families of our own, and we understand that there are some strange truths about them. All of them have challenges, a mixture of circumstances and personalities and relationships that over time can cause strain and splits. Families have histories where there are grievances held because there hasn't been forgiveness or reconciliation. Some family members have made awful choices that led to a string of events no one would have thought possible. When we spend time or hear about other families... It makes us maybe grateful for our family, or it maybe makes us wish that we had their family. But we're reminded of the common joys and the difficulties that we share. In the scripture that we study today, we see a family, and they're living out their dynamic. We only get a glimpse of the story, but it's enough for us to recognize the concepts and the issues that come from living in close relationship with one another. Remember that this is the next generation of Abraham's family. Last week, we saw how Isaac's marriage to Rebekah came to be. Honestly, we don't know much about them as people or even about their relationships. But the writer is trying to show us how the nation of Israel was formed through the descendants of the family of Abraham, of promise. So the passage begins to show us how Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's read Genesis 25, beginning at 19. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. 
The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. God, your word is living. Your spirit is here. We ask God for you to show us the truth that you have for all of us. Amen. It took Isaac and Rebekah 20 years to have a child. Isaac prays and God gives them life. Twins. Before they were born, Rebekah could tell there was something going on inside of her. Something that wasn't right. It's interesting that she doesn't respond in a way where she's concerned for the children. She talks about how awful it is for her. So maybe she's in a lot of pain or a lot of discomfort, clearly very scared. She asks God why this is happening. And he tells her plainly that she is feeling the struggle of the children fighting in her womb. The words he gives her are prophetic foreshadowing that the struggle will continue after they are born, after they grow up. Some see this as a strong indication of God predetermining how these children will grow, how he's already decided who the covenant promise will go through. Others see this simply as God explaining what will happen to an anxious mother. These words are instructive for her to know as she raises them. One wonders how she held on to these words, how they shaped how she treated them. There's a situation here that's a little bit hard to watch. In this narrative, there are three ways we see strong family dynamics at play that might have contributed to the actions that they live out. I think they're helpful for us to talk about as we examine our own experiences in families, as people of faith, as we consider the kind of people that God wants us to be moving forward. We don't want to be stuck in the same place for years to come with anyone. So the first concept we want to talk about is favoritism. From the word of the Lord to how the boys come out, it's emphasized how different they are. The first one is red and hairy, and they name him Esau. He's an outdoor guy who loves the hunt. 
The second twin, Jacob, comes out grasping the foot of his brother. He seems to be more of an introvert who likes to stay indoors. But verse 28 is our clue. Isaac, the father, loved Esau because he was fond of game. But Rebekah, their mother, loved Jacob. Now, if the Lord told you that you were, when you were expecting that your children would be divided in their lives... Would you choose to love them the best that you could, celebrating their differences, treating them how to respect one another and share? Or would you choose to openly love one over the other? It's easy to see how this could have set the brothers up for more strife as they grew. Instead of teaching them how it is that they could get along and respect one another, maybe the parents in their choosing whom they love best fostered the competition that we see here. In fact, in later chapters, Rebecca blatantly keeps the competition going, helping Jacob to steal even more of Esau's rights from her husband. The effects of favoritism are hard for us in families. They affect a person their whole life through. Does a parent love a child more because they identify with them in similarity? Or do they love them more because the child reminds them of their spouse or of someone else in the family that they love? Either way, when someone is not the favored child, it stays with them and they rehearse the ways that they were not loved. It's also weird in families how everyone knows who the favorite child is if there's a favorite child of the mom or the dad, even if it's never explicitly stated or even if it's denied. All good parents should say, of course, I love all my children equally, even as they have a favorite. And for the child who's favored, it's also difficult because it can cause an inflated sense of self as it did possibly with Jacob who carries his favored status into adulthood, who uses his position to advantage. But it can also cause guilt because they didn't choose to be the favorite. Either way, it can set siblings up in a way that is not helpful and very painful. The truth is that most parents have children that they naturally might resonate more with, but it's what they do with those feelings that make the difference for their children and in their families. You see, love is different than showing favor. In all of our relationships, we have to be vigilant to show love in ways where others, especially children, know their value. God loves us simply because of who we are. Simply because he delights in us as his children. doesn't love one of us more than the others. This is how the Lord treats us. How has favoritism affected your life? However, we've experienced it in ways that were hurtful or harmful or ways that make us angry or ways that make us push away from our family. We don't have to allow it to determine who we are or how our family relates now. We can always change the pattern. The second concept we want to think about is manipulation. Jacob does something so typical here with his brother, First off, we know his personality from birth was to grab hold of Esau, either to pull Esau back or to avoid being left behind. 
So many parents that I've spoken to have said that who their children were at babies, literally out of the womb, is consistent with who they were as they grew. As a brother, Jacob would have known exactly how to best Esau. He must have been waiting for this moment for a long time. This is one of the most vexing parts of being in a family. Oh, they know us so well. They know how we operate. They know exactly how we're going to respond in a certain situation. Years of living together in close quarters show someone how we will act. Jacob, seeing his brother was famished, chose to take that moment to his advantage so he could get exactly what he wanted from him. Something that was not his to have. He wanted Esau's birthright, the cultural entitlement enjoyed by the eldest male child. This would have included the position of honor in the family and a double share of the inheritance. Because there are only two of them, the inequity is larger, right? So now Jacob is going to get two-thirds and Esau will only get one-third of all that Isaac owned. Esau had, because he was born a few seconds earlier, familial and material superiority that Jacob wanted. Listen to this definition. Psychological manipulation can be defined as the exercise of undue influence through mental distortion and emotional exploitation with the intention to seize power, control benefits, and claim privilege at the victim's expense. This is different than simple social influence, which is how we daily relate to one another in healthy relationships. In this instance, it's manipulation because Jacob knew Esau's weaknesses. He used it against him, and he convinced his brother to give up something that would benefit him for all of his life. Manipulation causes huge damage in relationships, especially if it's repeated over time. It's a serious breach of trust. One of the ways that we know when we're being manipulated is because we feel angry or we feel confused. See how Esau's trying to buy a little bit of time here? He's trying to use a little bit of humor, trying to figure out what he's going to do. We don't like it, even as we feel powerless to do anything about it. But here the scripture is being fulfilled. The elder will serve the younger. We wonder why Esau didn't just say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And go and get his own food. Maybe this isn't the first time this has happened. For Esau to agree to something so big, perhaps it's taken place someplace before. Where has manipulation been present in your family, in your life? There's a verse in Jeremiah that's fitting here. Jeremiah 17, 11 says, As a partridge that hatches eggs which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him, and in the end, he will be a fool. In Jacob's life, even though he bests his brother twice, he himself falls victim to the scheming of others, especially Laban, his father-in-law. One would think that he would be wise to trickery, since he was so good at it with Esau. But his cleverness only seems to go one way. He seems to lack wisdom when he is being duped. If you are being manipulated by someone, I want you to take the courage of the Lord to stand up and to say no. Ask someone safe in your life. If you're in a situation where you're being taken advantage of by another person, in a case like this where the stakes are high or it's harmful to your soul, it's wise to not allow it. 
So if you're here today and you've been beaten down by a close relationship, know that that is not what the Lord has for you. That is not how the Lord treats us. He treats us with respect and dignity and love and kindness. And if you are here today manipulating someone else for your own selfish gain, I would urge you to listen to the Holy Spirit and make it right in your life. The third concept we see here has to do with family expectations. When someone tries to exploit us and we allow it to happen, we have to think about why that is the case. In scripture, it's not clear why Esau gives up his birthright, only that after it happened, Esau despises it. But it appears to me that maybe he didn't think very highly of it to begin with. If you're hungry, do you give away something precious to you just to be filled? You can't do that every time you're hungry because pretty soon you run out of things to give away. Some scholars think that Esau is just a live-by-the-minute kind of guy who allowed his dramatic need for food to cloud his judgment about the bigger picture of his life. Maybe. But there are also some aspects we know to be true about families that might help us here. In families, there are expectations for each person, the role that they might play in life. Sometimes a child doesn't want to live up to what is expected of them. This can be a common feeling of a firstborn. Clearly, they have the ability to rise to the top of it all and revel in success, knowing that they're living out what their family wants for them. But sometimes they can also forfeit what they were born into, not wanting to have any part of it because it wasn't their choice to begin with or because there's something different that they want. One of the things that we've enjoyed watching right now on Netflix is The Crown, the original series about the Queen of England, Elizabeth, the current Queen of England. Remember that her father, King George VI, took the throne when his brother Edward VIII abdicated because he wanted to marry Wallace Simpson, an American divorcee. And although Edward VIII willingly gave up being the King of England, When you watch the show, it's painful to watch his character with his family in later years. They're still angry with him. They don't trust him. They don't include him in what's going on with the family. They blame him for many ills, including the premature death of his younger brother, the king. He tries to be polite. He tries to fit in. He tries to do the right thing. But in his letters, they're full of venom, and he vents his frustration and has all these snarky names for them and says what a sorry lot they all are. When he watches his niece Elizabeth's coronation from a television set in France, he tells his friend, his friends, what each part of the ceremony means. And it's sad, and you wonder if he has regret, and you wonder all the lives that were affected by his single decision. Here Esau gives up not just the privileges of being the firstborn, but also the responsibilities. Like the royal family in England, the family of Abraham is a big deal, a much bigger global deal. They've made a lasting agreement with Yahweh and their family will be the one who will usher in the chosen people of what God's family will look like. Who will be the head of the family to be called Israel? Jacob, not Esau. So so Esau gives up his birthright. Later passages in the Minor Prophets and the New Testament portray him as a godless man who made a poor choice that affected 
generations after him. And this might be one of our biggest takeaways of the passage. Because what we do today has lasting impact on those who come after us. Life is so much more than what is offered to us today. What fills our appetites today. He was ravenous to be satisfied now. With no thought of serving the Lord later. Maybe he wanted to give up the pressure and give it all up. Maybe he thought that's what his mother wanted because she loved his brother best. It doesn't matter. Had it been more important to him than a bowl of lentils, don't you think he would have fought hard to keep it? It's easy to blame Jacob here. But no one can take anything away from us without our consent. Esau willingly gave away what God generously provided. That's why he's vilified in subsequent writings. Because he didn't value what the Lord valued. He didn't value what the Lord had for him. So that's something for us to consider in our lives. When God asks us to do something because of our position or our circumstance, do we rise up to it willingly or do we relinquish the privilege in a way that will affect those who come after us? See, we have gifts and we have things that the Lord wants us to use for him. This was a family expectation for Esau, but it was bigger than that because there was an expectation that came from the Lord. And all of us have to learn how to differentiate between what God has for us and listening to his voice and what those closest to us think that we should do. They might overlap, but if we let go of something because we can't take the pressure, we may give up more than we bargained for. Esau despised his birthright at the end. Not his brother. That would be normal. Esau hated his brother. No. He despised his birthright. What was given to him that he willingly swapped then became a bitter reminder of his choice. God knew all of this would happen. He worked through the choices of the one who wanted the power and the one who gave it away. The Edomites who came from Esau and the Israelites who were Jacob's line did strive and have quarreling in their relations for generations. But God was generous to both brothers. He loved both brothers. And after an estrangement, they reunite and they honor each other. This is an interesting biblical passage because Jacob isn't necessarily chosen because of his integrity. That's different for us to think about. Maybe he was chosen for his tenacity and who he would later be. God often chooses the one not expected, lifting them up to lead the way. For better or for worse, we're born into the families that God has given us. We learn how to relate in that place. And we take those lessons into all the places where we interact socially. At work, at school, in our neighborhoods. And of course, the church. In an important way, the two greatest commandments of Jesus help us here as we think about this passage to love the Lord with all we are and to love others as ourselves. Because these commandments help us choose to allow God to work in us, to heal us, to give us different ways of being and belonging as we let go of the sin of pride as we let go of our bitterness that might cause some of our unhealthy choices with one another. 
So may we each honor the Lord with how we treat each other and as we seek to put him first. Let's pray.